0: This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. As the actual voting in the Democratic presidential primary gets closer, the race is becoming tighter, both numerically and emotionally. Some wealthy Democratic donors appear to be panicking as the candidate that they've gravitated toward, Joe Biden, has had trouble in debates and also demonstrated significant problems appealing to the small dollar donors that had become so important in Democratic presidential campaigns. Additionally, the informal truce between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders has started to unravel a bit as the Massachusetts senator has pulled into either first or second place, depending on the survey. While the candidates themselves aren't going after each other, some of their supporters are sparring with increasing frequency. The key point of contention among further left supporters of the two candidates, revolves around what this show is named after, their theories of change. Both candidates have called for significant expansion of the federal government, more regulations on big business, and also for higher taxes on wealthy people. But how can such big promises be achieved when the Senate is dominated by small states that elect Republicans? Sanders says that he can solve the problem by activating the millions of Americans who have dropped out of the political system because they believe both parties mostly advocate for the same policies. And it's true that surveys of these unlikely voters reveal them to be more economically liberal than those who do vote. At the same time, however, the term socialism has proven unpopular with many Americans. In a survey conducted earlier this year, The Pew Research Center found that 33% of Democratic respondents said they had a negative opinion of socialism. Independents were even more skeptical. Elizabeth Warren, meanwhile, seems to be focusing first on winning the nomination, rather than completely overhauling the American economic system. Polls have shown that Democratic loyalists seem to like her over Sanders, But her left-wing critics argue that Warren's less sweeping solutions won't solve the problems that she and Sanders agree exist. With Joe Biden running out of steam each passing day, the debate over how to make change between Warren and Sanders is likely to become only more significant within the Democratic presidential contest. My guest in today's episode, Carl Bayer, is a Sanders supporter whose work has been published in the socialist magazine Jacobin. So when both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders jumped into the Democratic race, people saw that there was going to be a conflict a mile away. But to some degree, this isn't about Sanders and Warren fighting about the same people. You've written particularly about where Elizabeth Warren has been gaining support. Why don't you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so I will say this. I should begin by saying the polling is in flux. And this has to do with Elizabeth Warren's changing name recognition is a big part of it. So we're going to see demographic shifts probably in the next month or so. I would say they've already begun to move a little. But in any case, what has happened, the story of Elizabeth Warren's ascent in the polls has been that she began with a relatively white, relatively well off in terms of income base, uh, relatively what they call high info, or um, you know paying a lot of attention to the polls, which you know often tracks with income. In any case, what we have seen happen is Sanders starting out with a relatively diverse base, having the highest support among voters who earn the least. Also, uh, you know, similarly having more support among people who aren't paying that much attention to the primaries yet or people who are relatively uneducated. Uh, So that's been his base. Warren has had, in many senses, the opposite base. Uh, And what I think is happening right now is i think that as elizabeth warren's name recognition grows um largely due to all of the media arguably disproportionate media that she has gotten as her name recognition grows her numbers sort of normalize and become more like a generic democrat so what that means is that we will see a uh, movement in her income we'll see she can't she can't have high numbers only with the highest income bracket if she only gets support from that bracket then her polling numbers will ever go up so it, she's going to move out of that a bit she's going to have a more diverse base eventually as her polling numbers go up and that sort of thing but the question here becomes in my view what is driving these changes in numbers? A lot of the spin on Warren's ascent has been, oh, people are coming around to her her brilliant detailed plans, and people are really getting behind the Warren agenda and her supposedly relatively unadversarial approach to politics. That's one way of looking at what's happening. The other way of looking at it is just, She's getting a whole lot of media, and as you get a whole lot of media, your name recognition goes up and your polling goes up, and that's just what happens. That's what happened to Bernie Sanders in 2016, too. He had a huge name recognition problem at the beginning of the primary, and as his name recognition grew, his numbers in every other demographic grew, too. So I would say I I think we should be careful about saying that The primary is stratified along those demographic lines, or polarized along those lines, because I don't think it will be forever. But I think what's very important to pay attention to is what's driving the normalization of both of their poll numbers. Does it mean actual widespread populist support for the Warren agenda? Or is it just sort of the natural consequences. Okay, so we have a field where a lot of people don't like Joe Biden and a lot of people don't like Bernie Sanders. So naturally, we're going to have all of the other voters go somewhere, not Elizabeth Warren, it will be someone else.
0: Well, it's also interesting is that in a lot of polls that allowed people to have a second choice on the ballot, the number one ch- second choice for Bernie Sanders supporters was not Elizabeth Warren. In fact, it was Joe Biden.
1: Yeah, that's, you know, that's another thing that has changed, though. Actually, just was it? Yeah, it was just yesterday. Morning Consult rolled out its latest polling, and they're the ones who've been doing second place polling constantly. And actually, their most recent poll they rolled out, they had uh, first uh, first place Elizabeth Warren, and then a lot of her second choice support the plurality of it, was going to Bernie. This is the first time that has happened in a long time. I have not had the chance to go through and really evaluate um, whether that suggests that she really is cutting into the Sanders base yet or not. One thing people don't seem to be uh, bearing in mind when they talk about this is For all of the people who are migrating from Sanders to Warren, there's also a lot of people migrating from Warren to Sanders. If you look at her base of second-place support, her second-choice support for Sanders is high, and then his second-choice support for Warren is high. So there's a lot of cross-migration going on. Who is benefiting – in the net from this cross-migration, it's been Sanders until now. That's the interesting question is whether it's actually shifting so that now Warren is taking more from Sanders than Sanders is from Warren. But in any case, I, um, I'm i willing to believe that Warren is taking voters from Sanders. Uh, one thing that we have to bear in mind is a lot of voters are just aren't ideological. They go based on name recognition, especially at this stage of the race. They just seem name recognition a lot and branding and that sort of thing. And they develop little intuitions, things like electability become very important.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's the thing about electability. There is no form of definition, nor could there be. Yeah. There's just a lot of overlap because the public is not looking at this through an ideological prism. There's a lot of people out there, especially in the beginning, who had Biden as their first choice and Sanders as their second choice and then vice versa. But and so as these numbers have shifted around for non-ideological reasons, there's been a tendency among a lot of analysts to sort of impute larger ideological trends to that. You
1: can see how. One candidate seems to gain momentum, then suddenly that ripples up into the take sphere online and people start intellectualizing that and trying to understand how that's happening and imposing all kinds of ideological narratives on it, which, you know, don't always necessarily make uh, sense. I think that ideology does play a role in this election. It seems clear to me that it must, but... I don't think it plays the role that pundits always uh, think it does in terms of certain candidates having a monopoly on certain lanes and stuff like that. The evidence just doesn't bear that out. The Biden and Sanders overlap, for example, very clear case of where you have a lot of cross-migration between those two camps, even though politically they're very, very far apart. And you see that in a lot of cases. You see that with Warren and Biden I don't think that Warren is as far apart uh, from Biden as Sanders is but I think there's still some distance and you still see some cross migration
0: there Well speaking of the whole ideological sense of things as Warren Star has risen there has been a growing and emerging debate among the further left supporters of both Warren and Sanders about well the name of this show their theory of change which candidate is able to make the change that they are promising? Because they've both got big promises. They're both promising a lot, but how are they actually going to achieve it? So why don't you talk a little bit about how each candidate has a theory of change, what you see it as, and maybe get into how which candidate you think has a better one.
1: So I would start with Warren. And... It's very clear to me that Warren is appealing to sort of the liberal technocratist sensibility of a lot of our punditry. Um, You know, she's sort of branding herself as the candidate for plans, and then they get very excited about all of the details in her plans. uh, And... They're very interested in the little mechanics of how the plans work, although I would argue they actually aren't looking at these plans very closely at all. But they position themselves as if they're very sort of nerdy wonks, like very into the machinery of how this works. And this is the liberal solution for change uh, and for governance, that... she is arguing for structural change. I never understand what she means by that, because looking through her plans, a lot of times they are, in every sense of the word, structurally identical to a lot of what's gone on before. For example, if you look at her plan for working with Native Americans, uh, you see that a huge percentage of what she's proposing there are just variations on stuff that already exists on, for example, Obama-era programs. So she'll say, you know, Trump closed this program. We're going to reopen it. Or this program has been defunded. We're going to refund it. Or we're going to expand funding. Um, And she'll talk about things like, okay, uh, reservations don't have uh, enough um, Wi-Fi access or or cable Internet access. That's actually... A major part of her plan for working with native americans just talking about internet access and how she's going to increase funding to existing programs to expand internet access now i think that's great i think that we do need to expand funding for that but that's not structurally different from what we already have it's literally the same program just with more funding so This is what I would say. She's very interested in technocratic solutions and going into a previous program and seeing, but why didn't this work? What can we do to tweak that so that it works? And she sees the system itself a lot of times as basically, okay, you just need to sort of work out a few little problems within it. So that's how she talks about it, at least, and that's what a lot of her policy does. Hmm. So I think that the the changes that she proposes are very different from the way that Bernie Sanders talks about change. Bernie Sanders, since 2016, has laid out this theory of what he calls revolution, and this isn't revolution in kind of the old-style Bolshevik sense, but what he is calling for is he wants to bring an unprecedented number of voters to the polls uh, to vote out opposition to his programs that he is putting on the agenda, um, and he wants to do that specifically by mobilizing and activating non-voters, uh, and which generally means poor people which means young people, which means people who basically feel shut out from the political process or that the political process isn't doing anything for them. Um, I think that that's the best way to understand what he is proposing. The important part is that he sees the major obstacle in our politics as something about participation uh, a lot of people are shut out from participating either because they don't think the system can work for them, or because of you know election barriers, vote suppression, things like that. Um, but Sanders believes that if you can mobilize the electorate and you can actually get people involved, that this will create very different political outcomes. It's not a approach that depends on tweaking the system or making modifications within the system, it's an approach that depends on overcoming political barriers with the brute force of democracy and saying, "Okay, uh, you know, we are going to get Medicare for all uh, through the sheer brute force of mobilizing the electorate, getting tons of people out there making opposition to Medicare for all politically unviable. I think that that is closer to a a socialist theory of change, which talks about, especially in sort of the social democratic tradition, uh, which talks about the need to get working class uh, people, give them control over our politics, uh, working class and the poor. Uh, Give them control over our politics, get them involved, take away power from the inordinately wealthy, uh, who at this point are already dominating our politics. So, I see two different political mechanisms there. This is the the Jacobin argument that they've made a lot. This is a argument that uh, both uh, a it, that the Squad has been referencing in their endorsements of Sanders. So it's a pretty popular, common argument. I think that there are other arguments for Sanders, too, just having to do with him having more credible policy and better policy. But I think that's sort of the theoretical political
0: argument for him. Thanks. I think that's a great overview of where each candidate's theory of change is on the macro level. But on the micro level... That is to say, how do you win the presidency? It looks like both Warren and Sanders have also got a difference of opinion in this regard as well. They're each running very different candidacies in the way they conduct themselves. Sanders has been very much the outsider deliberately, so he doesn't even identify as a Democrat when he's not running for the Democratic nomination. And Warren seems to be trying to put Democratic voters at ease that she would be making the party more liberal. But on the other hand, she is a capitalist to her bones, as she says. Well.
1: I would say a couple of things to that. First, it is, I think there is a sense in which it is absolutely true that Warren has an easier path to the nomination than Bernie Sanders. When we talk about why that is, I think a lot of times these discussions are framed in terms of her sort of pulling one over on everybody. So it's like, Yeah, she understands that you have to appease the Democrats and you have to appease the establishment and make nice with them and all that. And sort of the unspoken upshot there is, but that's not really who she is. She's not going to be like that when she gets in office. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily believe that. Um, It's definitely like it's a risk we're being asked to take, right? That uh, the Elizabeth Warren we see right now, who you know sometimes gets in the right little feuds with various Wall Street people and Zuckerberg and stuff like that, uh, but other times you know you see her um, surrounding herself with uh, staffers from the Center for American Progress, things like that. Um, you see things like that, and that makes me wonder. Okay. medicare for all or seems to waffle on that yeah that probably does give her a safer shot in the primary uh that probably does make her road easier but the question we have to ask ourselves is Is she waffling on that because she secretly wants medicare for all and she's basically tricking wall street and uh you know for uh, third way at all these different uh lobbying groups that are opposing it. Is that what's really going on here? Or should we just take it at face value and say, you know what, she's kind of ambivalent about Medicare for all. When Harry Reid says that, yeah, he's probably right. Um, so that's one one response I would have to that is that um when we see her taking the safer path to the nomination Well, maybe there's a a good reason to be wary of that. The other response I would uh, have to this is, to a certain extent, the campaign that Sanders is running right now is exactly what a campaign that challenges power would look like. So, for example, he gets tons of bad press uh, in the corporate media all the time media legacy like all over the place just he gets left out the headlines he everything he says gets spun different ways he has quotes that he has said attributed to other people this kind of thing is happening all the time this is what you would expect uh, to happen to a candidate who poses a serious threat to the stakeholders in corporate media you would expect uh, this kind of very bad coverage Um, The other thing that you would expect in a campaign like Sanders is for it to be difficult to actually tell how well he is polling. In an interview last night, Ryan Grimm talked about this. Uh, He talked about the fact that Bernie Sanders is targeting a demographic that generally does not get polled, which is uh, people who – non-voters. If you look in a lot of polls, they're polling likely demographics voters or people who voted in the last primary things like that Um, so there is a real sense that we may not know what is going on with the polls this time around uh, with absolute certainty I've tried a couple of times to tease out uh, how non-voters or uh, people who usually don't vote how they view the different candidates. And there are some things you can do with the data uh, that might give you some indication, but the margins of error are so large I haven't been able to report on
0: it with any confidence. Actually, but, University does a really interesting poll every four years of people who they call unlikely voters, people who say they're not going to vote or they haven't voted. And that's really very quite valuable. And
1: if I were, um, honestly, if... I were the Sanders campaign, um, and I had the money to spare. I obviously don't know what their budget is on stuff like that, but I think that it might be a good idea to do some internal polling and leak that out to the public on non voters just to give people an idea because I think those numbers probably look really good for Sanders and I think that they would help a uh base that right now is a little bit rattled uh, by his recent drop in the polls and elizabeth warren's
0: ascent, yeah and the suffolk polls that have been done in 2016 2012 2008 what they've shown is that besides the fact that unlikely voters are more likely to be racial minorities they also have more economically progressive viewpoints than people who actually do vote and then when you delve a little bit deeper they're they feel alienated by America's political system, and they don't feel like either party is offering something that is interesting or different from the other one to them. And so the Republican Party is just no, not an option at all for them because of their economic views and also because of some of their more identity, Christian white identity politics. But the Democrats have nothing to say to them as far as these voters are concerned.
1: Mobilization has, ma- I mean, it's the difference between victory and defeat in the general. If you look at uh, the difference between 2012 turnout and 2016 turnout and the various demographics, uh, you look, for example, um, young voters in 2016 had a 6% drop in turnout. Compared to the rest of the electorate Uh, Same with poor voters Um, People of color They had a massive drop I'm looking at it right now It was in the range of 8% Just about every demographic you can name There was a huge drop off in turnout And the people there We talk about swing voters In terms of people Who might, might vote Democratic Or might vote Republican But there's also this demographic of I would call swing voters who might vote Democrat or might just stay home. And I think that they getting them out is usually the the difference between defeat and victory. And it has everything to do with whether you're speaking to them or whether you're ignoring them. So the Sanders uh, path to victory is to focus uh, inordinately on them. more so than usual, and hoping that
2: you can turn them out. Yeah, I think there there there's also a bit of a, a tension with regard to how Democrats or people of the left should view race. To the extent that Hillary Clinton or some other groups or some more centrist Democrats talk about race, it seems to be primarily more as a tool to mobilize people of color rather than to actually look at the larger problems that they happen to suffer from disproportionately.
1: Yeah, this is this is a um, longstanding problem with the Democratic Party is that they take black voters in particular for granted and just assume that the Republicans are going to be so monstrous uh, that black voters will have no other choice You aren't uh, actually bringing something to the table for them then a lot of times they will make the decision uh, you know we aren't we aren't as excited about this candidate maybe we won't turn out this time um, in as large numbers uh, so and you know part of the problem with that is that Democrats aren't making class They aren't appealing to poor voters, because if they did appeal to poor voters, that would disproportionately benefit black voters as well. So that refusal to take the working class and the poor seriously and to do things that would help them and make their lives better clear that Hillary Clinton was not bringing enough to the table uh, on that either because her share of uh, the black vote dropped significantly so you can't neglect those issues either
0: well and it is interesting in terms of the racial groups that Sanders has the most diverse constituency at least right now he's got the second highest black support and by far he's the highest Hispanic, Hispanic
1: for, uh, e- even in 2016 Uh, I believe that it was Nevada, I want to say, where he almost broke through um, largely on the huge wave of Hispanic support that he got in that state during the primaries. Um, So Hispanic voters have long been behind Bernie, um, and I think that began when they were – relatively repulsed by Clinton's ideas on immigration and that sort of thing. And then uh, they've they've remembered that Bernie stood with them in the last election and that he's been very active on issues that are relevant uh, to them in between the elections. Um, And so I think that's one reason why he's managed to hold on to their support.
0: Yeah, and I think a factor there also has to be that Sanders is very tight with a lot of service worker unions, and um, that those are industries where a number of Hispanics have tended to be involved in. So that certainly helped Sanders in that regard. But just going back to the candidates' theories of change, um, it's interesting that while Sanders does have a larger vision for how he wants to make the policies that he believes in, it tends to be a very political-oriented process and not as much societal or cultural. I mean, if you look at the, let's say, the conservative movement after Barry Goldwater's wipeout, you know, there was just this explosion of conservative opinion, journals, of magazines, of radio shows. Uh, and the Sanders 2016 insurrection didn't really inspire that, at least to the degree that he has been connected to that, um, it just simply hasn't happened, from what I've seen, at least. And the other thing about that is that if you look at the contemporary trends, you've got a number of right-wing billionaires and whatnot who are actively expanding media even now, especially now that they're under, they feel like they're under siege. Um, and publications on the left, meanwhile, are closing down. You've got Splinter that shut down recently. You've got Think Progress that shut down. There just hasn't been as much investment on the media side. And Sanders had all that money after 2016, but didn't put it into media, which is interesting.
1: Well, I think, I mean, I would, I would say a couple of things about that. First, Splinter and Cap aren't uh, necessarily aligned with uh, Bernie's agenda, certainly not in any case. And so it, it And and there's this dynamic that goes on where, you know, you can have a website like the Federalist, which has operated at a loss for years, but it has all of this grant money from the right just pouring into it constantly. There's a whole right-wing media complex of de facto propaganda arms that operate like this. There really isn't very much like that at all on the left, and part of that is that the... Uh, liberal, even the liberal uh, side of media in the United States uh, scares away wealthy people who don't want to see their taxes go up um, disproportionately. So especially once you get closer to Sanders' politics, it becomes very hard to find the kind of grant money pouring in that sort of guarantees that you'll have this media platform in perpetuity regardless of what the market is
0: doing or anything like that. Well, that's certainly true, but Sanders did have an opportunity there. I mean, if you look at other countries, there are quite a few that have openly aligned media institutions with socialists and socialist parties, I and Sanders um, didn't really do that.
1: that. I mean, that is a good point. I'm not sure – My the way that I think about this is I think that the amount of money that flows through corporate media and the amount of views that they get and the audiences that they have are just so enormous because of all the capital that flows through there that it's very hard to ever imagine the left taking that kind of approach. beat them. Even if we have a very, you know, for example, you look at Jacobin. uh, Its circulation is tiny just compared to like the audience that NBC Nightly News gets on a nightly basis. Like just very, very small. And that's just one of the big three uh, evening news shows. Then that's just one of their programs. And you know, you're competing with that. And then with cable, all of this is, as we have seen, has been working against Sanders. It's not clear to me how much of a difference a Bernie Sanders-funded outlet, either funded by, I don't know, cash on hand he has, whatever, in the campaign, or by donors that he's fundraised from or stuff like that. It's not clear to me how much of a difference that would make in our discourse. Um I think that his focus since 2016 uh, has largely been, you know, they have, our revolution has been sort of the arm, uh, the campaign arm uh, in the post Sanders world of trying to elect down ballot candidates. And they've been relatively active. Um, there are other sort of similar organizations doing similar things. So that was one um, area that he branched out. And then, of course, in his personal capacity as a senator, he was always doing stuff like drawing attention to various uh, you know, strikes, um, fighting for $15 minimum uh, wages for Amazon workers and various other workers. So I think that that is closer to how he thinks about it. I think that we have, the left really needs to hesitate about thinking that we can win the corporate media war in that sense, because I think that we are always going to be outgunned. It's, it's absolutely shocking, like the amount of uh, attention that Jacobin gets in the discourse, where you have professional pundits weighing in and talking about it, and usually attacking it, but they're responding to it at least. They are punching way above their weight in terms of how much money is flowing through that publication.
0: Well, I have to think that that's just simply because it exists as an opinion out there. And it would be interesting to see what would happen if there so were That, like that I don't six. know. How I would think that be?
1: basically there's sort of a limited niche in this market for left publications. And... If there aren't very many competitors, then you're going to fill that niche and you're going to punch above your weight. But it's not like if we had a second DACA event that people would be talking about its issues twice as much. I don't think that's how it would work in practice. I think that basically sort of liberal corporate media has a limited amount of bandwidth that they're willing to devote to giving token recognition to – Um, relatively left uh, discourse and that they're never going to get much larger than that bandwidth because if they do, that defeats their point. The point of uh, capitalist media is to dominate the discourse and to squeeze out media outlets that are at all skeptical of capitalism. They always allow token amount of dissent, and that gives you the idea that there's this free discourse going on, but never to the point where it actually becomes a threat. A lot of the money that these hard-right outlets have been able to get, um, again, a lot of this is grant-funded stuff and things like that. Or, you know, for example, the classic example is stuff that appears on Fox News. You had Bill O'Reilly on there. Fueling hard right rhetoric, especially about immigrants, forever, until it became a big enough liability for Fox. But then what happened? They replaced him with Tucker Carlson in that time slot directly, and Fox can absorb losses like that because they're so big and they have so much money flowing through them. Um, You know, in left platforms can't absorb losses like that. Or again, remember like the Federalist. The Federalist is a great example of a publication that is operating at a loss that is constantly fueling uh you know, either crypto Nazi or overt Nazi rhetoric about Im- immigrants and about Western civilization and
2: LGBT all of that sort people. They they're obsessed with transgender people.
1: Oh yeah, 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 right. They're I mean, they're constantly building uh, hate against various scapegoats and stuff like that. But I really think that there is a difference. There is an asymmetry here where the right always has this advantage of capital uh, funding through it that can push the discourse to the right, whereas the left has to rely on um, a popular movement that is going to lift Uh, its issues into the discourse rather than trying to impose it from the top down as these ideological propaganda projects do.
2: Yeah. So in terms of the role of populism for whoever the Democratic nominee is, this coming campaign is going to be, I think, a lot more important in that regard because Donald Trump has made a populism sort of the central core of his appeal. And to some degree, you could argue that maybe some of his personal stances or his personal demeanor not refined, and so therefore to, to use the, the the word vulgar um, in the popular sense. Yeah. So in that sense he is a populist in some Fashion or another, and his constant attacks against silicon Valley, you know jeff Bezos amazon yeah the those are those are going to be very beneficial to him because not only are they good for mobilizing his supporters but also it it helps him have some sort of anti corporate message that for people who are not paying close attention, they might think, yeah, well, you know what I mean, he is kind of against against
1: big business mm-hmm. he does he does have a certain populist appeal, I think that actually a lot of the early 20th century writers on fascism have a lot of interesting insights into why characters like Donald Trump, who after all are just inordinately wealthy, nevertheless are able to sort of pass themselves off as one of the working class. And a lot of it is just this constant rhetoric against scapegoats and sort of embedding in the mind of the right that they're being cheated, but I'm on your side, you know. I'm he he would brag in the primaries about how he would game the system with bankruptcies and stuff like that. And his pitch to the uh working class was, Yeah, I'm a cheater, but I'm going to cheat for you. Um and they love that. And I, so I think that Democrats would really do well not to underestimate his populist appeal. I think there's a serious danger that they will, because especially in sort of the very closed ecosystems of the uh, you know liberal democratic loyalists, they just have this very fevered idea at this point of, Trump just being this absolutely unlikable, villainous billionaire that, of course, everybody is going to hate him. But I think that when elections start and these preferences start become really partisan inflected, uh, that there's going to be a detachment between what the sort of liberal think tank consensus is. On Donald Trump's electability and what it actually is and we saw them make that mistake in 2016 as well
2: Yeah, I wrote an article at the end of October of 2015 in which I said Trump was going to become the Republican nominee And uh, people were like that's crazy. And I was like, well, the numbers are all there He's the only person who gets support from every faction of the GOP and I think you know there's there's a, a sense though that also He's he's managed to really tap into a, a long standing sense among a lot of people who are religiously conservative that they are under attack by yeah. the secular left. Um and it's interesting that there are there, there are some Democrats who are now starting to talk to that those fears somewhat like Pete Buttigieg. But he's about the only one that you really see discussion on
1: that front. Yeah, I I don't think that a lot of, um, I mean, I think it's just sort of obvious that a lot of Democrats don't really have, a lot of the Democratic candidates, I mean by that, uh, don't really have a very strong religious background, very strong religious sentiments. um, And they get judged for that much more harshly uh, in our discourse for whatever reason, whereas Donald Trump, you see, uh, evangelicals really work to rationalize. It's it's obvious that he isn't a very religious man himself, but they he Trump is very good at selling himself as yeah, I may be an outsider in some sense, but I'm on your side. I'm cheating for you. I know that your religious beliefs are being oppressed, and so I'm going to fight that. And he's he's a very good salesman
2: on that. Well, and and it's something I think that in this country, America is so disproportionately religious compared to other countries. It's a it is a tricky position for a lot of Democrats because for in the same way, a lot of racial minorities feel like Republicans are just not an option at all. Yeah, people who are secular also kind of feel like Republicans are not an option at all because they're even even more explicitly. Christian supremacists. Yeah. Um, so basically there's this underlying tension between all the groups in the Democratic Party or the left in the United States that aren't really there because they agree with it. It's just because they don't like the other guys.
1: Yeah. And I would also say while we're talking about Trump's populist appeal that this is one of the things that worries me about Elizabeth Warren in particular, because even though Democrats at this point really like to dismiss the, the whole Native American issue as a non-issue. And you have a lot of pundits just saying, this is over, nobody cares about it anymore. But I am telling you that the Republican base is going to deeply, deeply resent the idea of a woman sort of climbing her way into the halls of power by positioning herself as a Native American. That's the narrative that's out there, and that's definitely uh, something that's going to resonate with a lot of racists to feel like they're being cheated by any kind of accommodation uh, that is given to non-whites in our country. And so I worry that this uh, narrative is really going to sort of touch on the id of the right-wing base in a way that a lot of other attacks won't. You know, against Sanders, the obvious attack is going to be that he's a socialist. And yeah, in some sense, socialism is unpopular among Republicans, but it isn't as unpopular. It's not monolithically like a deal breaker. Like some people would think if you look at the polling and all he has to do is peel off some of them. Uh, And I think that there are, Plenty of Republicans who would just sort of stay home, wouldn't feel emotionally invested in beating this sort of, you know, old man who's been a gadfly to the Democratic Party, and who, yeah, he has some beliefs they think are kooky, but uh, you know, maybe some of them will think oh, he's just as good as Trump. Whereas. Warren is somebody Her narrative on the right is something That really aggravates People and that's really going to Mobilize people To campaign for Trump and to vote For Trump and to do whatever they can To defeat her because they're Disgusted by it
2: Yeah well and I think there's also a A vulnerability on that Issue with um, Racial minorities as well um, Oh
1: yeah Oh absolutely I, I mean it, um it, especially among native americans of course this is something that has been uh it, that we've sort of talked about in a very different way than we would talk about a similar situation If Elizabeth Warren had uh, pretended to be black or if Elizabeth Warren had pretended to be Hispanic or anything like that I think that it would be treated as a much bigger deal in our discourse whereas I look online and I see people sort of blowing it off and saying oh come on nobody really cares about this and it's because they don't know any Native Americans and they don't see them as an oppressed uh, group that uh, you know, really has been disrespected here. And so she's going to have, she's going to have a problem with Native Americans coming out there. I I can assure you, there are going to be a few Native Americans who are willing to come out with Trump and say, yeah, we're horrified by that. And he will milk that for all it's worth. Democrats will absolutely deserve it because they did it to themselves.
2: Um, and, it, and it isn't just that people would be voting for him. It's, that they might not just vote at all, um so that you know yeah. the the whole identity of Trump, everybody knows that he's a total liar who lies all yeah. the time, but basically this ancestry issue for Warren it is a way for him, a mechanism for him to say, "Look, yeah, I'm a liar, but you know what? she's a liar too, so yeah, don't you know there's no difference it's between us.
1: It's a lot like Biden. And the Ukraine story and the corruption issue, he's a terrible candidate because his corruption sort of offset Trump's corruption in the discourse. They can just say, oh, yeah, well, you do it, too. They can just, what about that to death? Trump had a lot of uh, allegations by, credible allegations by women of sexual assault and sexual harassment in 2016. And um, he diffused that by talking about Bill Clinton. Uh, and bringing out Broder- Juanita Broderick and things like that. Um, Trump, ha- Trump will do that whenever people make certain attacks on him. He'll say, okay, but what about you? What about this? He'll turn it back on them. Uh, Biden is vulnerable to that. Warren is vulnerable to that. Uh, The only major uh, candidate I can think of who isn't very vulnerable to that is Bernie
2: Sanders. You either build yourself up or you attack your opponent. I I think a lot of the Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign was, oh my God, look at this guy. He's crazy. Don't vote for him. So all of her candidacy, at least to the general public, was based on, this guy is horrible. Don't vote for him. It was all negative. But, yeah, but if yeah. you're if you're getting into a negativity contest with, with Trump, he's going to win that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Bernie Bernie would be running a very positive, very affirmative campaign about all the stuff that he aspires to do and that he wants to put on the table. This is his brand. This is, has been his brand since he first. You know, really appeared on the national stage in 2015. Obviously, he was doing things before that, but that's when he became famous. He is going to run this campaign that's talking about Medicare for all, that's talking about, uh, you know, medical debt forgiveness, that's talking about student debt forgiveness and things like that. It's going to be very hard to put him on the defensive about anything. The most that Trump will be able to say is, You're a socialist, and his response will be, yeah, I am. <laughs> Either that's a deal breaker for you or it's not.
0: Yeah, well, I think he will also be vulnerable on the health and the age issues yeah, as well. That's
1: another issue where unusually Trump Trump isn't in the best of health himself. And I think that that's an issue that Sanders wouldn't be inclined to talk about or to bring up in his campaign. He's not going to say, look at Donald Trump, he's so unhealthy. Um, And so I think that that issue will either stay off the table or that it will you know, it'll be them lobbing sort of old man health concerns at each other. Whereas in, for example, Biden's case, you have to talk about Trump's corruption. That's not something that you can avoid in the way that you can avoid talking about his health or whatever. And so that really takes a powerful weapon out of Joe Biden's hand. I think that's the way that that would play out. I'm not sure that health concerns would become that big a deal with Bernie Sanders. I could be wrong.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. There is some vulnerability for him. But on the other hand, he did also make that an issue in 2016, especially unofficially, not on television, but through memes and whatnot, questioning Hillary Clinton's health.
1: I think that if it became too big of a liability, that Bernie has a very logical response to that, um, talking about Trump's health. And if it's not a liability, then Sanders can keep pressing forward on the rest of his campaign. But it's all just a matter of what it looks like in the polls and how Trump decides to use it or not use it.
2: We'll see. Last point here, Bernie Sanders' coalition for 2020, at least in the Democratic Mm -hmm. primary, he got a lot more competition, and so he actually has yeah. lower numbers this time. What what that revealed is that there were a lot of people who were supporting him last time who were not committed to his ideas, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. So to what, it, so the thing is though, there, there's a real challenge for Sanders to say to people who had voted for him last time or who would, would have done it, um, how, what can he say to them to say, look, You voted for me already. You supported me before. Come back. How can you do that?
1: I think that, again, as we began talking about, so this is a good place to circle back to, I think that a large part of his coalition comes from non-voters who it's very hard to tell who they prefer and who he is chasing after in a way that other candidates are not. So there's it's going to be difficult to see whether this gamble pays off until the actual primaries and then suddenly you may have these astonishing victories on his part or it may just look exactly like what the polls say i think other than that what he does is he talks about um, i mean for one thing i should add i don't know how much gas that biden has left in the tank he's running on 8.9 million cash on hand at this point it seems entirely possible that he just runs out of money and has to drop out. Um, I, I don't know. We'll just see. But I think that Bernie's pitch is that he is a known quantity or known quality. Wear on, and things continue to get heated, and you have a lot of controversies over, okay, well, where does this person stand on this issue and stuff like that? I think that becomes more and more appealing. I think that people, it, the uncertainty is going to become a turn off for a lot of people, and that eventually they'll
0: find their way back to Bernie. My guest today has been Carl Bayer. You can find his work at C A R L B E I J E R. and also at the socialist magazine Jacobin. I'm Matthew Sheffield, and this has been Theory of Change.